0: Hey there, and welcome. I'm your host, Diane Erickson, and today we're going to reprise and revisit the episode, Paul McCartney and His Creative Practice, with authors Philip McIntyre and Paul Thompson. This interview was recorded and released in the spring of 2021, right before their book on this exact topic was released. Philip and Paul studied McCartney's creative practice for years, and I love some of the insights from this conversation, particularly the ones on the topic of flow state and class. If you have any questions or comments about the episode, please leave a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or you can email the podcast at onesweetdreampodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, most of the podcast episodes have moved to the podcast Patreon community, which is uh, patreon.com forward slash onesweetdream, though some will be re-released in this revisiting series. If you'd like to join the community or support the podcast, please consider uh, joining Patreon. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Paul McCartney is one of the greatest, most prolific and successful artists and musicians of the 20th century. He's an icon and a legend. So obviously his creative practice is wildly interesting and worthy of study. So let's dig into what Philip and Paul discovered. to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Hi, Tanya. Welcome back. What's new? Uh, well, I uh, just made some popsicles. How oh. are you? <laughs> Exciting. Amazing. I want some. So what about you? Uh, well, it's beautiful. Summer's here. We just completed our Ram series. Uh, there are three episodes in total. I talked to Eric Wangberg, who was the mixing engineer on Ram, and he was a fantastic guy. And then I did uh, two episodes with Duncan Driver, where we went, extremely deeply into the album, and we did this in honor of the album's 50th anniversary. And uh, I wanna thank you again for your amazing help with the ending of the final episode, episode three. You were fantastic, so thank you. Oh my God, no problem, I loved it. No, really, it was so much fun. And anyone who hasn't listened to it should listen to it right now. Yes. All right, so on to today's episode. Yes. I talked to Philip McIntyre and Paul Thompson about their book, Paul McCartney and his creative practice, the Beatles and beyond, which is coming out in September. I absolutely love this interview. I adore these guys. I love their perspective. Um, This is a subject I'm really interested in, not only for McCartney, but for all the Beatles. I do recognize that this podcast has been on a bit of a McCartney tear recently, but that's really just the way the episodes fell. I will touch on all the Beatles uh, individually and as a group. Although I can't promise that I won't return to McCartney as well, because I do find him fascinating. I think he needs reappraisal, and God damn it, the man is busy. But for now, let's return to this interview, because I was. Very lucky to have had the time with these lovely guests. We are jumping in midstream here, mid-conversation. We were discussing how to to position the book in a newsworthy way, in a sexy kind of way, and I suggested that their treatment of McCartney, taking McCartney and his art form seriously and treating McCartney as an artist might be a good hook, shockingly, um, or at least novel, because he's so often positioned as this hugely famous person that was just part of this massively important band rather than a great creative artist himself. I mean, I I know people respect Paul, but somehow not enough is known about his actual artistry and his creativity and creative practice. So I think that this is a huge hook. Okay, so here we go. You guys were saying that you need to have something newsworthy about the book. He's one of the giants of the 20th century in terms of music, and he's almost just treated like a celebrity. There's a disconnect in terms of Paul McCartney as artist and Paul McCartney the superstar.
1: Yeah, I think what our book gets to the heart of, which is Paul McCartney as a human being, you know, as you mentioned, Diana, there is this media circus that surrounds amazingly famous people like paul mccartney yeah and we forget that he is a human being you know he has a musical journey which we trace in the book to a certain degree and we try and challenge some of the myths um that surround creativity more generally but also this idea of um of genius
0: the idea of genius makes them otherworldly
2: yeah, I, I think you're right. We deal with the concept of genius just very briefly in the book, but other things that we've written kind of deal with in a little bit more depth. But it's an idea that comes from what's well, quite ancient, really. It comes from the um, muse, one of the gods, or group of gods in um, Greek mythology, picked mm-hmm. up again by Europeans. And it seems to be something otherworldly going on with um, questions of genius more than anything. So we try and avoid the use of the word genius. That's not to deny that there aren't really extraordinary people who do absolutely extraordinary things. But the notion of genius does exactly that. It places responsibility for all of the great work that these people do in some other realm altogether. And that's virtually unattainable for everybody else. You've got to have a a reasonable amount of talent, that's for sure. But the problem with uh, attributing genius to either him or claiming it as John Lennon did Um, is that we've fallen into a fairly common European mythology about creativity. McCartney was immersed in popular music from early childhood, right? The man actually loves popular music. That's one of his hallmarks. And I don't think you can do much of anything these days without immersing yourself into a particular domain of knowledge and getting to know the people there. Who also have some uh, awareness of that domain of knowledge without actually getting good at it.
0: When you dig into McCartney and what he's done, do you respect him more?
2: Absolutely. When you actually study what McCartney has done as a human being, you know, a, 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 a fallible uh, but nonetheless extraordinary human being, it, it, it puts a lot of responsibility on everybody else. I think that Paul, being born in a certain place in a certain time, Yep. When the world was ready to open itself up to songwriting talent like his, songwriting talent like Lennon, and to a lesser extent, in the early part of the Beatles period, George Harrison as well. I mean, he blossomed really, really well. You can't hang around with songwriters like John Lennon and Paul McCartney and not have something rub off, you know.
0: <laughs> well, that's what John Lennon said, right?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Lennon claimed genius and <laughs> McCartney almost does the opposite. It's like, I'm a normal guy. And I think they're both extraordinary. But I do think that they are talked about in very different ways as artists. And John really aligned himself with the more traditional version of genius. Yes. You know? So he's sort of got this halo of like artists, whereas Paul has much more this workman, craftsman yeah, kind yeah. of halo.
2: I think one, one thing we point out in the book is that the, the, at, at the crucial juncture of those ideas really taking hold because rock music didn't exist when the Beatles started. In fact, in some ways that comes about when Sgt Peppers comes about. So rock and roll certainly did. So they were inventing things as they went. But at the crucial point where they split up and, you know, the the eyes of the world and certainly the Western world were upon them, John Lennon had the stage. Why did he have the stage? Because Paul, supposedly the great PR person of the Beatles, headed off to Scotland to his farm and absolutely disappeared. John Lennon had the microphone. It was the worst PR move McCartney could have done, was actually disappear from the world at the time. But as a human being, he simply had to just to recover from it. And and I don't think McCartney's persona fully recovered from that. And I think the press kind of bought into all of that. Certainly Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone certainly played it up quite. But there's an interesting story, you know, that certainly people who come to the Beatles and might not have a detailed understanding of them will certainly take that story of Lennon as genius and the leader of the Beatles and so on, and, and McCartney, of course, is the is the soft one, etc. at face value.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: But Beatles nerds, people who have dug into it, s- discover the amazing contributions that McCartney had made, not just to the Beatles but to songwriting in particular across his entire um, generations of work. There's a wonderful story that I can't remember who told it, but George Martin and this journalist were in the green room in... Um, I think in Cleveland at the um, celebration of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Martin's kind of quietly whispering to the journalists saying, you know, and this room is full of people like um, Jimmy Page and Billy Joel and quite a few others who are, you know, massive stars in their own right. And he mm-hmm. just whispered in this journalist, hey, you just see what happens when McCartney walks in. And sure enough, when Paul McCartney walked in, there was just silence and all eyes were upon him. They knew, and this is the quote, he was the head boy. He was he yes. was the he was the songwriter songwriter, so anyone who knows music for a start, and anyone who's dug around inside the Beatles story in particular knows the depth of contribution that McCartney made to that particular um, band. So, yeah, I think it's a highly problematic PR position for McCartney to be in. And then you know you get you get the particularly the UK tabloids and their relationship to Macca the celebrity, which you pointed out earlier. I mean, sure, Paul will know quite more about what happens almost on a daily basis at times with, and I'll put this inverted commas, with Macca, the celebrity, which I think is how he's referred to.
0: I'm doing an episode right now on Ram. Yes. But I'm making two points in this. One, that he basically left the stage wide open. Paul went to Scotland and it was a very bad PR move. But I think that maybe it gave him space to reinvent I've always looked at it as sort of a bad thing that he ceded the stage but I think from a creative perspective it enabled him to have the space to come up with something new uh, a yeah. new sound and you know obviously he wrote a ton then
2: Ram is actually one of my favorite albums of McCartney's and, and mm-hmm. I could talk about it for quite a while but I think <laughs> I think you're perfectly right there are times as a creative person where you need to um, disappear yes um, almost into yourself Take yourself away from the public domain, as it were. Yeah. And then there are times where you need to be extroverted, be out there talking to people about the work that you've done and, you know, selling yourself and all that sort of stuff. And I think I think you're perfectly right. This was an opportunity for him to... I think he admitted himself it was Linda that, um, you know, kept him on track. The early critiques that came out about Ram, you know, they'd sharpened their knives by that particular point. Right. And Ram was just, as Lennon said, just granny music to them and it was really interesting that here was Paul at the height of the, you know, the hype around rock music and very masculine form, et cetera. Here he is writing about family and kids and happiness and love. It um, would seem to be a very odd thing to do. But uh, I think musically that album is so inventive, inventive to the point where he completely re-recorded it as a piece of lounge music.
0: You know, yeah, was, with
2: adopts a massive persona, which was a, a funny, entertaining, and amusing move, I think, on McCartney's part when he invented the character of um, Sir Percy Thrillington.
0: <laughs> it um, makes you was, laugh.
2: Yeah, exactly. It was. I think. It, I think his sense of humour is just amazing, even in the public domain. Ram, one of the places that I, well, the place that I met Paul Thompson originally was at the Art of Record production conferences, and I got to meet Phil Ramon, and he told me the story of the writing of Ramon, one of the early names that Paul McCartney had for himself when they first toured Scotland, mm-hmm. um, as the Beatles, he invented the, the, the Paul Ramon name, and so, you know, he was he's mucking around with Phil Ramon, spelled R-A-M-O-N-E, Mm -hmm. Um, And he comes back the next morning with a song called Ram On, um, which was really just him playing around with um, both of their, well, McCartney's stage name and and Phil Ramone's real name. And I thought that's a really good insight into his creative process. He'll take anything as the basis for a song. He'll pull things (laughs) out of what seemed to be thin air.
0: He says he's always got his antenna out, yeah. that is great because Ramon is, it's kind of like a self-soothing or it's like a self-prayer song almost, it just comes in and it's yep. his, his old stage name.
2: It's a throwaway line, but you know, I think there's something in it I think probably yeah. three quarters of the first McCartney album is like that. Yeah. Something about it has captured his attention and, you know, if he... Say pursues it as a full song, great. If he doesn't, great. But, you know, this is what I'm doing.
0: One of the other insights that we had, um, I am doing it with um, a contributor to my podcast, Duncan Driver. And we were talking about one of the problems with Ram was not only that he was depositioned as the establishment who liked granny music, but Paul was being inventive and creating something new that was not really aligned with the zeitgeist. And so, you know, it was not on trend.
2: I also think that that's a, um, maybe a class thing as well because it sold really well. Yes. You know, fans bought it. I've gone through, I think, my third or fourth copy. I bought the box set, <laughs> et cetera. I'm still in love with it. And I'm still discovering things about that whole album. If you listen to, um, there's a penultimate note that McCartney sings on, um, I think it's Backseat of My Car. Mm-hmm. which which still sends shivers down my spine. It's just a, a, a really good demonstration of his vocal technique. But, yeah, yeah I think you're quite right. Um, certainly in terms of the zeitgeist that the um, rock critics um, were involved with at the time, you know, um, progressive rock and, you know, everybody was an artist and, you know, everybody mm-hmm. had to strive to be an artist or demonstrate mm-hmm. that they were in some way or another. McCartney just goes, bang, this is what I'm doing here. What do you think about it? And they unfortunately, as I said before, I think they had some access to grind and, uh, yeah. and I think it was, I was just desperately trying to think of who said it, but um, many of those critics weren't as comfortable with their masculinity as McCartney was at that time. He was unafraid to say, look, I've got married, I'm having kids, this is my wife, I really love her, I want to hang out with her. You know, whereas most other rock stars were almost like the early part of the Beatles saying, you know, you've got to be, you know, hyper-masculine, you've got to be right. freely available, all those sorts. Of
0: yeah, that really bothers me, such toxic masculinity. You know, you got to be confident to be like, I'm putting out Mary Had a Little Lamb.
2: I don't think he even cared. You know, his daughter Mary, um, you know, he'd be sitting around singing that song for her, basically. I think the arrangement of it, is, musically, I think it's fantastic. Mary Had a Little Lamb was for the wrong audience. You know, yes. the, the critics from Rolling Stone simply didn't get it mainly because they, I don't think they could. They weren't family-oriented. They weren't um, oriented to kids, etc. In fact, I think those things were seen as anathema to them. But, you know, things change as they move on, and I think you're right. McCartney is – I think McCartney is just confident around women. It, once again, I think that goes back to his family, you know. Um, Paul might be able to tell us, but I think family is really important in Liverpool. And His auntie Gin um, and other um, females in his life were really quite strong women. Um, who, whom he respected quite a lot.
0: I talked to Chris Salovich, and he said that repeatedly that Paul was much more secure, especially with women. That, you know, he did a lot of digging and talking to people in Liverpool, and that was one thing that he really recalled that that was something that Lennon was a bit jealous of McCartney for.
2: I don't think John understood it. There is a story about McCartney, I think there might have been a holiday in Greece, I can't remember, but McCartney being on a might have been on the deck of a boat. Playing with Julian, just literally playing as a kid, would play with another kid, and Lennon was totally bemused by this. You know, and literally asked Paul. He said, "How do you do that?" Um, so I don't think it was in um, Lennon's realm to really understand the ease that um, McCartney has around females and um, children.
0: When Zalovich was talking about it, it was much more about. The ability to pick up women, his ease and sort of...
2: Without going too far there, I think that Paul, in his early days, um, I think realised what he had um, and took immense advantage of that in his day, in his relationship with Jane Asher and the other yeah. women around him. But somehow, once he'd met Linda and realised in some way that you know this was his future as a man, I just, he just took to it really, really well, I think. I mean, I, I'm not talking about... Paul McCartney the actual human being I can only talk about Paul as I've seen him represented in all sorts of ways so you know I I may have constructed him in a way
1: that he isn't actually those things I think resonate as well all the way back to you know childhood John Lennon had a very different upbringing to to Paul McCartney you know Paul McCartney was from a quite a big working-class family he would have cousins and uncles and aunties around um, you know, we, we make the point really in, in one of the opening chapters when we're talking about Paul McCartney and developing as a performing musician, how Paul remembers a lot of the, the sing-alongs really fondly. This is where he got to see his dad, at, not just as a musician, but as right at the center of uh, of the family in a lot of these sing-alongs, you know, and John Lennon had a very different upbringing compared to that. You know, music was seen as a very family orientated thing for Paul McCartney, whereas I think for John Lennon, it might have been, uh, in a way, a little bit of a rebellion. You know, his mother taught him a few. His mother Julia taught him a few banjo chords. But where he lived in 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 his suburb of, of Liverpool, you know, on, on the edge of Walton, on Menlove Avenue, um, it, it you know, music music was an aside essentially, or or a distraction to to other things that you know that that Aunt Mimi might have seen as as more progressive for John, you know, like reading and, and and education and things like that. So, you know, even at that early stage, uh, the difference between McCartney and Lennon is actually quite vast. Yeah. And the way in which they they view musicianship is is very different.
0: That's interesting.
1: It's more more than anything, it's just highlighting the difference um, of upbringing between, between McCartney and Lennon. You know, we assume that because they were... Uh, I don't know if you if you know the part of Liverpool that that they're from. Paul McCartney he was born in Walton, but then you know after moving a couple of times, ended up in in his, which is now famous, Fortland Road, which is in the suburb of Allerton. But you know a, a ten minute walk away, and and you're in John Lennon's neighbourhood where he grew up, and it, it, it you know c- compared to McCartney's neighbourhood, it's a lot more uh, upper middle class, and um. And so expectations are different. But I think also that the family nucleus is also different too. John Lennon never really knew his dad. He didn't have a relationship with his dad. Whereas Paul McCartney would, would sit and watch his dad entertain his family. You know, those two things are incredibly striking, I think. My mum's Irish as well. So, you know, we, we always had sort of sing-alongs. And I, and I think that um, the difference between Irish and English culture sometimes is that if you're entertaining people... In England, you're seen as a little bit of a show off, but if yeah. you're entertaining people in Ireland, it's a it's more of a collective. Oh wow, you're reading the room, and I think you know that that's that's something. Again, we make that point in, in the book that this is where McCartney learned how to read an audience and read a room and and learn which songs were popular and which ones weren't. And I think that it, it wasn't until Elvis Presley came around, or and maybe Little Richard as well, that that John Lennon maybe saw something in the ability to perform to people and exude. So Yeah, you know, and cover up some of his, his his lack of confidence, potentially.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, that has been spun as a negative, as being a little bit more shallow. Instead yeah. of like, there is a politeness or a social sophistication with Paul in terms of putting people at ease, making sure people are entertained, like you said, reading a room, which sometimes in the Beatles story is seen as a, I don't know, him being not an artist and just more of a show person.
2: That's associated with uh, um, that romantic notion of um, creativity and and romantic art and it's heavily associated with questions of authenticity right a self-expressive genius who's been touched by the muse in some way yeah yeah. the very association with show business finds that you know that's highly problematic Bob Bob Dylan went through exactly the same um, processes as well um, as did David Bowie, you know, his early career was all about show business. And then they all bought into, in some ways, the, the rock ideology that in order to be an artist, you needed to be authentic. How were you going to be authentic? Well, the prior generation was into um, show business and, you know, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra and so on and so on, et cetera. So we're going to be the complete opposite. You know, to right. be authentic, we we are not going to be those things. Um, and McCartney, um, you know, a bit like, um, you know, his singing children's songs, etc. He really didn't buy into any of that. I don't no, think that was really purposeful. On. He was just very comfortable with what he was doing. So in order to um, in order to be authentic, you know, they, they could pull, you know, people like Jan Wenner had written the characteristics of what a rock musician could be. They outlined right. what, what they were. Yeah. And McCartney, of course, didn't fit into those. And I don't think he cared a great deal other than, you know, it, it affected some of his sales and his reputation uh, through a certain period of his life but many musicians actually bought into it, you know, in order to be, you know, I, I need to be able to wear my scruffy street clothes onto the stage. I'm not going to talk to the audience, turn my back on them if I want to. I mean, this whole genre has developed around all of these characteristics, etc. I am being, and I'll put this in inverted commas, an artist, and that's rock mythology writ large. So, you know, Paul, of course, understood from his family, from his father, from all points of view of entertainment, that this, in fact, was what you did in order to make sure that you enraptured an audience. And if you've ever been to a Paul McCartney show, that's exactly what happens. You are enraptured by his performance. Um, He understood that really, really well. And I think in the long term, I think, you know, his approach to things has been really vindicated. Just because he puts on a show doesn't mean he's inauthentic. I think McCartney is as authentic as you would get in terms of being a, a, um, a professional out there working the stage. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. It's what performers do. Lisa Minnelli at one point, no, it wasn't Lisa Minnelli, it was Judy Garland, sorry, um, her big hit, you know, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. There was a documentary on her I was watching and she was side of stage and, once again, you know, she turned to the person beside her because they were actually asking her about, you know, how do you achieve that emotional connection with your audience every night? And and she was quite um, inebriated at that point and she turned around to the per- per- person and said, watch this. Walked out, walked out onto the stage, sang um, somewhere over the rainbow with tears streaming down her face, walked off and said, that's how I do it.
0: Why was she able to do that?
2: Well, she was a performer. You learn to perform. You've, you learn to channel particular emotions for each mm-hmm. song. You, mm-hmm. know, you, you know, actors do this day in, day out. Um, nobody criticises them for being inauthentic. And being a, a, a songwriter and also being a performing musician You know, you have to get people to understand, and Paul might be able to confirm this, you know, he's playing in a current band. Each night that you go out, you're trying to get your audience to the point where they forget their problems in the world. You know, it's your job to create that emotional climate,
1: no matter how you're feeling. This, again... It not just goes back to McCartney's family upbringing and, yep. and seeing, seeing his family perform, but we do need to, you know and we do go back quite you know briefly in the book to Hamburg and this is this is where the Beatles learned as a as a collective to play together. They learned to read an audience. They learned new songs and a, and a full range of different new songs to to appease an audience. You know, I think I think there's even a, a quote in the book that we include from Brian Griffiths who who, who saw them there. And um, he said Paul was really the one keeping them together, and and I think that's key. And and Paul also kept them together when Stuart Sutcliffe decided that he wanted to stay in Hamburg, and the Beatles headed back, and they realized they didn't have a bass player, and Paul McCartney steps in as bass player. And th- there are critical moments here where we see Paul McCartney as the consummate professional, and that is forgotten in that in that story, I think, or maybe maybe overlooked
0: in the Beatles story or the Hamburg story.
1: I think both. You know, if if we're gonna talk, if we're gonna talk about what Paul McCartney is able to do, he's able to be the best guitarist in the Beatles, arguably, and then to go to to be the best bass player of his time. He's certainly a lauded bass player because of that, and and I think we we sort of that that's almost overlooked. I think it might
2: have been um, Francis Rossi from Status Quo who said, you know, how unf- no, Paul, might have been one of the fellows from Ten CC. who said, how unfair is it, you know, that so many talents were actually moulded into Paul McCartney? You know, just if if only one person could just sing like he sings, wouldn't that be fabulous? (laughs) But, you know, he's a a groundbreaking, inventive, and innovative bass player. He's no sloucher on the guitar. He sings like you wouldn't believe. I'm sure you do believe. But, um, you know, there's just so many things that he's very, very good at. Um, And those things might not necessarily come from... um, you know, something magical or mystical or whatever, he works damn hard to um, um, exploit his talents as well. And I think Paul's quite right. You know, Hamburg was incredibly formative for them. You know, it's kind of where they learned to be performers. One of the groups that were already there Dick Derry and the seniors, um, forgive me if I don't get the names right, said that Alan Williams, why are you sending those bum beetles over here? They'll ruin the whole thing for us, you know. Well, when they left, they certainly weren't. You know, their very first um, performance back in Liverpool, you know, one of their first big shows, blew both them and the audience away. The sheer charisma that they had developed, you know, was just astounding.
0: unfortunately has become a bit of a drama in terms of the interpersonal and the the biographies and books on the beatles take their eyes off the whole musicality and artistry of the beatles and i want to know about them learning to be artists in hamburg and and actually this is where paul's incredibly important john especially in the early days was the leader of the gang and paul was the musical leader they both Mm -hmm. played really critical roles within the beatles the leadership is really shared
2: between them yeah, and the, you know, the story of George Martin deciding, you know, at one point he's deciding who's going to be the, the Cliff Richard in this group and it dawned on him, you know, this band doesn't need a leader, you know, they are all equivalent, they're all bringing something to this. He realised, you know, it wasn't Cliff Richards and the Shadows, it wasn't you know, Johnny um, and the Beatles, it was actually the Beatles. Yeah, they were all contributing something, and you know, I don't think it's. I mean, these are great marker of Paul's um, abilities and talents. You know, George Martin would work with him at the drop of a hat, um, and his opinion of of McCartney's musicality was extremely high. And I think um, you know McCartney's relationship with Martin, as we talk about in the book, was also a a pivotal one and a crucial one for him. Um, Certainly, it helped him learn to be a record producer, and that's another thing that gets missed about McCartney is that. Is the records that he produced for other people, you know, starting with you know, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band and Mary Hopkins and his brother, um, as Mike McGear, Peter and Gordon, is writing songs for these people and winding up uh, producing them as well. And he wanted to test that out at a certain point. Was it was it just because he was in inverted commas again Paul McCartney, Right. so he releases a song under the songwriter's name of Bernard Webb, just to test it out. And it still it still becomes a hit.
0: Right. Um, Right. I, I spoke with a historiographer, Aaron Weber, and yes. we are both frustrated at how George Martin, he's a fantastic source. He's given a lot of information about the musicality and the, and the talent and the abilities and skills of the various Beatles. And, and he's he's been ignored in some biographies. Mm-hmm. He's such an important source because he watched them as professionals over their whole career as Beatles. And I I personally love George Martin. I think that George Martin should get more credit than he gets.
2: But (laughs) I think what also gets forgotten about George Martin is his sense of humour and his his, uh, um, scholarly training in uh, musical arrangement. I think both of those things were incredibly important to what the Beatles were doing.
0: And how Um, open-minded he must have been.
2: Totally open-minded. You know, anyone who also um, recorded and produced The Goons, would have to be very open-minded yeah. to, to deal with Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers and Harry Seacombe. Um, <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon John Lennon, Paul McCartney and George Harrison and, and Ringo would have been a doddle after that. <laughs>
0: that's true. Okay. <laughs> I've got one question for you since we were talking about Ram and the importance of family and love, and that's all baked into Ram. But do you hear anger and heartbreak in Ram too?
2: Yes, and certainly in Paul's vocal delivery more than anything. And now, whether that's a performance, I don't know. His vocal delivery in "Dear Boy" and you might hear it there. I listen to "Uncle Albert." The sorrow in "Uncle Albert," I think, shines through for me. What else?
0: Well, there's too many people in three legs, which
2: oh, too many people in three legs. Most definitely, there's a there's. I don't know whether it's—I wouldn't call them angry pieces, but they're certainly imbued with relationship between anger and sadness. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, it's really that combination—the anger and sadness.
2: Yeah. Disappointment, um, disappointment, all sorts of things as well. And I, I put Imagine and Ram together as a, as a um, you know a pigeon pair. The thing that link, links them is John Lennon's uh, photo in the inserts of the original Imagine album. You know, holding the ears of a <laughs> pig in imitation of McCartney's holding the Ram on the cover. <laughs> Yeah, But, you know, the, the back and forwardness that, that was going on as a public argument between them at that time, I think, you know, sure, anyone who's been through a divorce is, is going to be angry, they're going to be sad, they're going to f- have the full range of emotions available to them and I think both of them certainly did during those albums and you know um, the song How Do You Sleep was was literally a tirade against McCartney mm-hmm. and it, having been so close to John Lennon and the other Beatles who also played on Imagine with John Lennon that must have been personally devastating for Paul I would think you know to the point where I think Linda had to say to him at one point you know come on come on they're just out to get you you know don't believe what they're saying you know they they want to drive you into the ground and I think that was a saving grace for him you know that fact that she had his back um so i'm, I'm hearing all of those things in ram um, i don't think you can listen to any form of music and not draw in the stories that are around them at the time you know mm-hmm. it's one of the things that we as human beings like to do you know we, we we make things iconic by building stories around them you know these are really iconic performers and Really iconic stories, certainly for people of my generation. And and it turns out my son's as well.
0: Sometimes that album has been labelled as shallow or inconsequential. And I think it's a very emotionally authentic album.
2: I would agree. These are young men um, who are trying to establish themselves through um, things like the hero's journey and all sorts of things. And here are they here. They see superficially that Paul has ended that hero's journey for them. So I think, in a Jungian sense, you know, they were out—they were out to um, destroy him in any way they could, and they had the platform to do it. But you know, history is a is a an interesting thing that it's continually malleable; it's continually being reconstituted as we discover more things and so on. And I honestly think that McCartney and his positions that he's taken at the time have been quite well validated by history.
0: What do you think, Paul?
1: I, I think it, quite rightly it shows a disconnect between what this is all about expectation i think i think uh journalists at that point were expecting ram to be you know the next the next beatles album as it were and mccartney had decided no it's it's going to be something entirely different and i think in, in in a sense it was the beginning of mccartney's journey into the artist that you know the, the solo artist that that we think of again you know we, we talk about this in the book you know mccartney is an expert collaborator too, and always has been. You mentioned George Martin there, Diana, and I think he's key, he's critical to to the Beatles story because um, without him uh, and maybe some of his symbolic or economic capital involved in that process, uh, the Beatles might not have been able to do some of the things that they did. Luckily as well, George Martin was an experimenter. He'd, he'd worked with the, had very good relationships with the um, Radiophonic Orchestra Um, He was interested with, you know, figures like people like Delia Derbyshire, who who were working on experimental music and, uh, you know, strange sounds and strange techniques. Those eventually made their way into Beatles records. And we see sort of the culmination of that, I think, in Strawberry Fields forever. Surprisingly, you know, not not necessarily um, a McCartney composition, but a John Lennon one. But it's you know we all know that the opening bars are strawberry fields forever because of McCartney's intro mm-hmm. on the Mellotron. Mm-hmm.
0: let me take you down'm and,
1: and and you know it's it's absolutely in, impossible to think of uh, of, of Lennon without McCartney and the other way around. And I think what's interesting about Ram is that McCartney probably felt that, that the shackles of the Lennon and McCartney idea had, had truly come off. Mm-hmm. And journalists really just didn't know what to make of it. And as Philip says, I think that these were these were young men who had probably, uh, you know, they've bought into this romantic myth and the idea of, of a rock legend and someone who's suddenly singing about family what's interesting is that you know a couple of years later you know you hear different interviews or you know maybe maybe eight years later yeah. you hear interviews with john lennon and he says exactly the same thing he says i'm writing these songs for people who've who are my age who have now got a family right so maybe it just took time for lennon to catch up on yeah. that particular idea yep.
2: i think you're really right paul and and you know for someone to produce um songs like Beautiful Boy or Woman or, you know, those songs in, his, in that later period of, of Lennon's life, I think, he came around. He came around to the same basic conclusion. Uh, you know, family is critically important. Um, right. You know, once he'd had his own um, children um, and was uh, in, a, in, um, uh, in New York where he spent a lot more time with them than he did with Juliet, uh, you know, he realised how important his position as a father Mm-hmm. Um, his his son's position in relation to him, um, et cetera, how important all of those things were. You know, um, you listen to Beautiful Boy and you, you, and you realize he's got it. He understands. He finally understands.
0: Yes, I love that development. We've got a 10-part series on the breakup, and our, our premise is that it basically comes down to the fracture between Lennon and McCartney, that everything stems from there, like all of the external Klein and all these other things come from the main fracture that happened between Lennon and McCartney
2: well I would agree actually they were immensely um, competitive but they were also collaborative and I think one of the words that we use in the book is co-opetition. you know they, they were highly competitive but they were also highly cooperative so I think those relationships um, amongst important songwriting figures like those two pairs I think are critical to understand at the human level you know a certain amount of jealousy goes on in those things, you know, the the ego involved in um, that relationship as as well. So I think you're probably quite right. The core principle of the breakup was around both John and Paul um, and there was, you know, they they talked about it as a divorce. That's literally what happened. They went through a divorce just as any other couple would. Um, And I think, you know, there may have been triggers from various people around them, you know, whether it's Klein, whether it was... Um, Yoko, whether it was Linda coming in on the scene or, you know, whoever um, has been blamed at other points. I think they were ancillary to the entire relationship that um, John and Paul had with each other.
0: I don't think some of these people would have gotten in if they didn't already have the fracture in their relationship. We talk about it more on the interpersonal relationship too, as being a love relationship, not romantic love, just a, a deep, deep bond being an artist and being in a band together isn't just a traditional partnership.
2: No, they went through all of this together. Um, and that forms an incredible bond. You know, if you go through any form of traumatic experience together, it does form a bond. Yeah. But
0: we've also got, say, John Lennon, three weeks after he wrote How Do You Sleep, saying, Paul is the closest person to me and has always been, except for Yoko Ono. And yes. you know, th- that's when they're supposedly not talking.
1: What do you think of Paul? No, I've changed. He's still uh, the closest friend I ever had except for
2: Yoko, so I mean, I'm still close to him. I have yeah.
0: So yes. I don't even think it's just a traumatic bond or we went through this experience. I think that there was a deep connection between them.
2: Oh, Totally, totally, totally. Uh, you know, they're, they're a family. Uh, and, you know, if you grew up in a working-class family, as I did, all sorts of things um, can go wrong. You you fight tooth and nail at a drop of a hat. But... You can also declare that this member of your family is the closest person that you've ever been uh, involved with, not just necessarily three weeks later, but half an hour later, um, (laughs) which is a very strange thing for human beings to get involved in. So I can understand that that Lanham would have said those things quite easily. And at the same time, um, you know, form points of detestation with McCartney as well. Um, Once again, you know, this is the original point that
1: um, Paul was making that these people are human beings. I think what makes what makes this particular topic special, though, is that the centre. You know, instead of communicating like a working class family, um, they're communicating with each other through music. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure Diana, if you were into to interview a music therapist, you know, someone who was working with people who were communicating through music, they both had a deep and shared understanding of their cultural context of music of the time. And you know, almost to the point where you know, when we think about their their the songwriting um, period, where where they'd stop, where they'd stopped, you know, around about 1965, you know, where they'd stopped writing in the same room together, they would still arrive with maybe a semi-formed idea, and think, and they're already thinking about what would the other person think. McCartney's thinking, oh, what you think, you know, Lennon's going to like this, and the other way round. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, even on um, even, you know, last year uh, when uh, to to Mark Lennon's 80th birthday, you know, McCartney said, and we've put this quote in in the book. He said, ever since the Beatles broke up and we didn't write together or even record together, I think one of us referenced the others when we were writing stuff. He said, I often do it. You know, I'm writing something and I go, oh, God, this is bloody awful. You know, and then I think, what would John say? And he'd go, yeah, you're right. It's bloody awful. You've got to change it. (laughs) so I'll <laughs> change it and I think so, so part of that part of that deep bond is musical and, and they are communicating in a way that's that's beyond words and it's beyond straightforward interaction um, they, they'd collaborated so intensely together on stage off stage but also they came together in their songwriting partnership through a shared understanding of what each other likes I think that's critical and I think that's key and, and again it's probably often overlooked
0: Oh yeah, I think that's really important. You know, there's a quote from John from about 1967, I think, where he says that the Beatles talk through music, it's faster. We find it faster than talking through words. Their main form of communication was was musical. And I think that we miss a lot of the conversations that they're having. For example, in John's song, I Know, I Know, it starts with the riff from I've Got a Feeling. And so I would assume that he's signaling to McCartney in some way. I do think that they have musical conversations. I think there's throwbacks to Elvis, to Buddy Holly in their songs that probably are conversations between them. We've done a couple of song analysis where we say I think that there is some evidence or I think we could potentially read in I'm not going to say that anything is for sure but there seems to be some signals to the other in some of these songs and some people have said no they're not doing that and I think they're among the most famous songwriters in the world they were partners for 12 years why would they not occasionally communicate through music
2: yeah I, I think that song in in particular of My games is is I think you know I, I've since I first heard it, I thought well, that's him talking directly to Paul McCartney.
0: I, I think you know,
2: it is. Yes. Saying things are things are okay, and you know, and the it, 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 it's not just the riff at the front; it's the it's the style of bass playing. There's all sorts of things. It's just he's saying, "Look, you know, I know who you are, um, and it's all okay. Um, it's fine." You know.
0: Well, he's also saying, "Look, I I realize that I kind of made a mistake, you know, mm. and he's, he's sorry. He apologizes. I think he got a little bit confused by people around him." You know, there's other songs. He also drops some McCartney lyrics and song titles in them. And I, I feel like when John does that, you know, when he puts three or four of them in one song, well, that's fair game. Paul, I wanted to pick up on two other points. In my discussion of Ram, I talked about looking at Ram from a perspective of Paul McCartney as artist, not just as ex-Beatle, really helped me contextualize Ram as being an important part of him formulating his new voice post-Beatles.
1: Yeah, because I think, you know, McCartney saw this as an opportunity to start again. You know, in a sense, I think that McCartney had seen what it takes to be in a band and and to operate in a band. You know, he was right there at the start and 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 he'd, he'd obviously seen, you know, he'd clearly seen something in John Lennon at Walton Village Fate, which, yes. again, you know, we, we mentioned in the book that this has been, this is part of the myth that it was a chance meeting, but but it really wasn't. You know, I think that, um, you know, McCartney was very much looking f- looking to form a band. And, and in a way, to go, you know, what better way to try to audition someone than to actually go and see them perform without them realizing <laughs> that you're there.
0: That's interesting. So he was auditioning John without John knowing it.
1: I... I, I can. I think so, to be honest with you. Um, but you know, the, the, this is something that that, that we talk about um, with Ram uh, and then M- McCartney. Previously, he saw this as an opportunity to maybe uh, strip back everything and see who he is, who he is as a, as an artist, and also to think about. Okay, well, let's see if we can put a band together and do it all over again. I suppose it's the same way when maybe who knows when Jeff. Jeff Bezos loses all his money going to space. He's going to come back and maybe start his own business again and, and build it from the ground up. But um, in a similar way, I think Paul was trying to do that. And, um, you know, he, he puts a band together. He puts, uh, he's puts. he got Denny Sewell on drums. He's got Humor Kraken on guitar. Um, he's got Denny Lane, um, formerly of the Diplomats and the Moody Blues. And again, someone who Paul McCartney had known since the 1960s. These weren't necessarily randomers; these were people that he knew could play, you know, and people who he knew that could contribute in a way. So again, he's auditioning a band in the same way that he auditioned John Lennon at Walton Village Faith, uh, and they head uh, to the London Institute for Contemporary Arts. This is where they rehearsed and tried to to bring a band together, and, and that's really the formulation of, of Wings. So Ram I think is is a critical point in McCartney's career as an artist and, and I think McCartney probably would see that as, as a a renaissance or a new beginning
0: yeah, in a way. Yeah. There's something very exciting. Like when you when you talk about Bezos that in some ways, I think he would love that, not that he wants to lose his money, but all these guys that can build things like that, he would probably be excited again, you know? So I wonder if McCartney felt that sense of like, all right, I'll challenge myself, new challenge, you know?
1: I think, I think again, as an
2: artist, he probably had to. If you listen to, if you listen to Cross the Beatles' work, and I mean, they didn't really repeat themselves much at all. Mm-hmm. And then McCartney reinvents his voice completely. The sound he had across Wings and then through his solo period, there's very little reference back to his early work, and I think that was a deliberate process on his part. You know, he he was out to reinvent his entire um, catalogue in a very different voice, which he managed to do. He probably uh, um, had trained himself in terms of what the Beatles were doing, they never repeated any song the same way twice, um, so he, there were things that he'd learnt in that period, but He just simply did it again. And I'm not sure I know of too many artists that actually, you know, maybe Picasso, you know, this was maybe McCartney's blue period as opposed to some of the earlier, more formative things or whatever. Um, You know, massive artists who just simply reinvent, you know, throw everything overboard and start all over again. And I think Ram was a purposeful... I mean, that seems to be such a confident album that, you know, he's gone, Okay, let's, you know, Okay, forgive my Australianism, bugger you, we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) Um, and away he went so I think it was a determined effort on his part to reinvent his voice completely
0: you know what this makes me think of and this is why I brought the the breakup series is that we dug more into McCartney and looked at what he said at that time like we looked deeply at his interviews and I was surprised because one of the things that has changed about my perspective is how deliberate and confident an artist Paul is maybe he's not always confident interpersonally or personally you know. I'm sure he's got lots of insecurities, but he's a much more confident, thoughtful artist than I think he's given credit for. And that, that's sort of the way you guys are speaking about him. Yeah,
2: I think so. Yes, he's absolutely confident in what he's doing. Um, his judgment might be a little off at times um, in terms of when to release something or you know yes. what he would record here and there and so on. But I think you're quite right. You've just got to hear it in the recording. Have a listen to every part on Maybe I'm Amazed all of which he played himself. To me, it sounds like a live band performing, but listen to every part in that, and this is not a person who is bowed by much of anything.
1: well Diana you mentioned it just before you mentioned the word challenge mm-hmm. and I think that's probably a, a, I don't know I'd, I'd have to search through the book but I think that's, a, that's a, a word that comes up quite a lot when it comes to McCartney McCartney likes to challenge himself he'll set himself a challenge you know he set himself a challenge to write a song for someone else he set himself a challenge to yeah. produce an album for Mary Hopkin he set himself the challenge to write uh, a TV theme tune mm-hmm. um for Thing with Bob, and and I think I, I think it's it's James Bond exactly, yeah. and I think it's 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 useful to think about McCartney less about um, particular periods in his artistry, but just as a set of challenges. Maybe that's the way that he views it. You know, I don't know. I'm not Paul McCartney. But, <laughs> um, can can I get a little
2: technical in terms of what we write about in the book? Um, Diana towards Pasadena is a, a school called Claremont Graduate School run by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he's quite a famous uh, person in terms of creativity. Um, came from Chicago University. Um, it's his model that we're basically working for. But most people will know him because of his introduction of the term flow.
0: Yes. Uh, and you may wow. have come
2: across that as well.
0: Oh, yes, I'm very familiar with it. Yes, it's very yes,
2: interesting. And flow um, comes about in a relationship between skill and challenge. So, you, you know, the state that you go into as a creative person, which I personally think is what motivates most creative people, is just want to be in that state, which is a free-flowing, time-elastic, highly focused state of being. Yep. You, you need a certain level of skill in order to go in there, but it has to be equivalent to the challenge that you are setting yourself or is set for you. And that may be because of the field or the domain, but... There is a relationship between skill and challenge in order to go into that state. And if McCartney wants to get back there, given his level of skill, then he's got to set himself at challenges as an artist in order to go into that process. And he accomplishes the challenge, so his skill goes up. And then in order to get back there again, he's got to have another challenge. And I, I think he's done that all of his life. He's gone, well, what can I do now? I think his work with the fireman is a really good example of that. You know, He's got his mainstream persona um, you know, the expectation of his audience is we're going to get these particular sorts of things from him. And to an extent, he caters to that. So what does he do as an artist? He runs over here, he becomes a fireman, doesn't tell anyone about it, no expectations of what he's got to do. And here's the challenge. You know, let's let's get ourselves um, um, in, immersed in um, electronica. Here, This guy over here, youth, he knows what he's doing. Let's get together and collaborate on that and see what comes out of it. And these are all just experimental works. And it does that right throughout his career. Um, so you may be right, Paul. In fact, we need to go back and write another chapter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or another book. Or another book. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's amazing that having conversations sometimes comes up with new ideas.
1: This goes back to probably right at the start, because we've been asked uh, by a journalist to to come up with a uh, something that's newsworthy and i think maybe that's it philip what's newsworthy is that actually th- we could th- think about paul mccartney's career as a series of challenges
2: yeah whether that's front page newsworthy is another matter <laughs> we have
1: to say what the uk that's, not, that's not for us to decide that's yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: i really think redefining paul as artist The time is right to be doing that, to be saying, hey, this guy's not a celebrity. Let's let's actually look at the artistry, because I think that there is dawning right now this idea that, oh, shit. Yeah, he's he's really one of the great artists. I think it is coming into consciousness right now.
2: Yeah, I think it's becoming part of the zeitgeist. But I also think if you've been a musician um, for any length of time and you've Try to learn some of his work, or yes. you know, uh, work his songs yes. out, and so on, etc. Or even just imitate his singing. Um, you realize very, very quickly um, that this man is, in inverted commas, again, uh, an artist of the highest order. Well,
0: that's the problem. You talk about genius, and you say, okay, well, you know, let's let's put that aside. But then Paul does have extraordinary skills. The fact that he's good at so many things, and yes, he works hard. But a lot of people work incredibly hard that are talented that are still mm-hmm. good at one or two things, you know. They're good at yeah. singing and guitar, never mind bass and
2: drums and yeah. whatever, you know. But I think the idea of zeitgeist is really important. I think space and time are, are crucial um, to people becoming as iconic and as famous as Paul McCartney, you know. He was born in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. He had a particular set of attributes that both he and the people around him exploited, Um so there's a whole confluence of factors that have come together, not the least of which is his talent and his multiple talents. But the thing that we propose in the book is that you cannot specify one particular thing about Paul McCartney and say, well, that's the thing that made him okay. once again. Paul McCartney. It's a bit like going to and people have done this, um, going to the uh, Einstein's bottle brain and saying it's that fold on that part of his brain that made Einstein a genius. No, um, that may have had something to do with it. Mm. But but McCartney's um, existence in his family, you know, the talents that he has, his persistence, his determination, the fact that he would set himself challenges, you know, his relationships, all of which contributed to what he was doing, um, I think those are all critically important. So I think the fundamental point we make in the book is that there are multiple factors at work in creativity. You can't just go to the idea of genius you can't just go to talent, you can't just go to emotional content or whatever. All of those things are at play. It, it,
0: it is a complex system at work. That's the fundamental point of the book. I've got a question about collaboration, because you guys have mentioned that a couple of times. So I have a Facebook page for my podcast and, and you know, Beetle Wars, I'm sure you guys have, you know, seen them. They're, they're... Ridiculous. We're
1: part of it, I think. I think we're part of it now. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah.
0: That somebody was saying, well, Paul never had the musical relationships that George did, and my point was, like, actually, Paul has collaborated a lot because they they had sort of discounted, say, George Martin and some of the people that Paul has had long standing collaborations with and it's not a competition george has lots of musical relationships i just didn't like the dismissal of paula's collaborator can you guys talk not to prove anything can you just talk to paula's collaborator
2: i I think you know paul mentioned a little earlier that throughout his entire career he's been a collaborator i don't think you can get to that level of fame without being a collaborator um i think if you in the book we quote some of these things um his his I think his latest band, and I think that's the band he's been collaborating with longer than anyone, certainly in terms of live performances, mm-hmm. and listen to some of the things that they say about him as a musician, um, as an artist, um, as a performer, etc. cetera. Um, there is the deepest respect there between, I think, all of those people in that band. Um, but I think also McCartney recognises that they are bringing something um, to his live performance as well, and I think they most certainly do. But you just trace his career... And there's probably a very, I mean, I mentioned maybe I'm amazed that he could do this all by himself, but he likes to be with people. He likes to work with people. Um, you know, his collaboration with the much denigrated uh, um, Ebony and Ivory, his collaboration with Stevie Wonder, I think, was a marvellous piece of collaboration um, that was trying to demonstrate a particular point. His collaboration with uh, Michael Jackson, um, that didn't end well, but it was a still a, another, I think, wonderful um set of ideas that come out of all of that. I mentioned youth. but Many, many people who have worked with him um, at various levels, some of whom, uh, um, Paul, we might mention Ken Scott, um, who yeah. simply, didn't, simply didn't like him. But, you know, that's okay. 50% of people are going to like you and 50% of people are not. Um, but all through his career, he has relied on and worked with a whole pile of people. Um, you know, he's... Eric Clapton would play with him at the drop of a hat. You know, anyone would play with him at the drop of a hat because they recognised a who he was in terms of the history of what he's done. But secondly, um, what an incredible performer is! And you've just got to go and watch any live performance um, and see what he's doing. Actually, watch the rooftop performance of Get Back and yeah. tell me whether his conversation with Ringo on drums and him on bass is not as perfect, perfect as it can be. <laughs> and he's singing at the same time. Amazing yeah. piece of artistry. That, that rhythm section is just, um, they're astoundingly good. Um, you know, they're not uh, the most technical. I just think they are really, really good as a rhythm section. Um, and, and then, you know, to, to do that at the same time as you're singing the way that he's singing, you know, you're just patting your head and, and um, you know, rubbing your stomach and you know, doing a million other things at the same time. And still coming up with the goods, um, so I think you know he, he understood collaboration at its deepest level. You don't get to be that good a rhythm section unless you actually like playing with people.
1: Couldn't agree more. And I I think actually that speaks to the Beatles more generally. You know, Um, McCartney was probably the only one to make a record pretty much all on his own. I think that speaks to McCartney's, uh, his technical as well as his musical ability um, as an artist. You know, um, um, we talk about this in the book, you know, his his leanings as a producer are probably more musical, Um, but he certainly knows how to plug in a microphone and to point it in the right direction. Um, you know, wh- whereas you know Ringo, George, John, all all collaborated with with other engineers and producers. Uh, it, you know, for for all of those for all of their records. Mm-hmm. So I think that speaks to again speaks to McCartney saying, okay, well I'm I'm happy to strip all this back and see see what it what's at the essence of this. If it's just me engineering it, and me producing it, let's see what we come out with. And I think that's what we see with McCartney One, and that's a really important record as well in McCartney's career big you know not not because it's the first one of his solo records but because of the way that he did it as well so to speak of of collaboration it's sort of anti-collaboration in a way to see okay well what you know he's probably again this is McCartney set himself a challenge saying okay well can I make a record on my own as it were
0: yeah there's a certain curiosity there as I'm listening to you guys I'm getting the sense that, you know, like John's journey seemed to be so personal about exploring emotions, looking inward and trying to express that. Sometimes when, you know, when we're talking about McCartney, I start to think of him as being just so curious about the whole musical process. I don't think that's any less authentic about channeling his emotions, but there's a curiosity that I see with him.
2: No, there was something that he'd said, you know, when he, he was living with the Asher family and, you know, he's being introduced to the Cultural scene in London at that particular time. You know, he was—he has a voracious curiosity. He just wants to know what's going on yeah. Um, yeah, at all sorts crazy. of at all sorts of levels. You know, I, and I think he's been that way his entire life. You know, okay. So how how do you write a film? Um, you know, he he might not have succeeded at it, but he had a go.
0: Um, yeah.
2: He's just curious about all of that thing, uh, all, all of those things. And um, I think you're quite right. Um, you know. I, his, his imagination you see him um, you know i see him as a comedian as well if you've ever watched any um you know backstage clips or or you know behind the scenes things etc there is an insatiable curiosity about them you know the 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 commission that he received to um write the carnival of um light which was a precursor to revolution nine you know th- th- this is not a guy who um who is um you know satisfied with what he's been doing as an artist he's All his life, he's demonstrated that that voracious curiosity. So I think you're quite right. Okay.
1: And going back to that idea of collaborating, you know, again, we, we mentioned it briefly in the book, I'm sure other people have talked more extensively about it, but, you know, his work on New and yeah. the fact that he gets four different, you know, he collaborates with four different producers, uh, you know, so he's all, you know, he also recognises what a producer can bring to a project too. Uh, in that sense, you know, uh, the general public, you know, probably don't know what, a record producer does um, but they're they're really in charge of the, the creative aspects of uh, from start to finish of the recording project but i think once you are you have such symbolic capital like paul mccartney does then the record producer can can actually f- form part of that collaborative partnership with him and maybe fill in some of his uh, you know fill in for some, some of the knowledge gaps or you know what we would call in the book uh, some of his gaps in domain knowledge for example mm-hmm. you know working with someone like Nigel Godrich who um, is, is an expert producer um, incredibly uh, has some incredibly useful and technical ideas and then all the way to, to you know Ethan Johns who's you know a lot more you know rock orientated mm-hmm. um, that's a really interesting album I think to look at it from from collaboration because you know instead of, instead of uh, being able to hear the collaboration, um, it, you know, explicitly, you almost have to guess what happened in that collaborative relationship. And I think that that album in particular is a really interesting example of, of someone who is still isn't done yet. Yeah. They're not finished.
0: I love that album. That's a particular favourite of mine, I actually. like that one a lot. Mm.
2: I think the question of curiosity also goes with risk. Um, he's always been willing to take a risk um, at, at all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and I think new. I think Paul's quite right, it demonstrates that really, really well. There's things on there that, um, you know, he could have done things in a fairly staid, conventional way for what he has done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he once again, he's trying to reinvent himself, trying to bring himself up into a particular period of time, et cetera, and is willing to work with people who he knows know what they're doing. Um, so he's taken risks all the way along, Um Risks, I think, that other people simply would not have taken. I mean, there's a classic story of when, um, this is around 9-11, and he writes Freedom. It's a simple little sing-along thing. It's designed to be a simple sing-along thing. And, and the story, um, as we told it in the book, is that um, the people who were producing the show said, "Do you think that you really should be putting a new song on him? You know, why can't we do you know, Let It Be or whatever? And he said, no, 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 I want to do it, I want to do it. Yeah. He's, got a, he's got a new band with him that have never performed publicly before. They've done a bit of rehearsal. <laughs> Pete Townsend, um, Mick Jagger, you know, kind of says, well, you know, people just want the hits, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. and then Pete Townsend tries to talk him out of it by saying, <laughs> are you going to workshop a new song in front of millions of people, Paul? <laughs> yeah. And he says, well, when you put it like that, yes, I am.
0: <laughs> Great. And do you think that was a success?
2: Well, it was a big success. You know, he had that crowd in the palm of his hand. They were singing along. You know, he he had them with him.
0: I remember watching it. I I was living in New York at the time. And they looked like it was for them, to your point about reading the room. It it kind of like it was for them and they seemed to need something, like a rallying cry at that time.
2: We mentioned that story in the book because, you know, he said at the time, you know, his father was a um, a fire warden in the Second World War in Liverpool. Yeah, And, you know, it, it, it still has a... Liverpool, and you you could talk about this a bit more than me, Paul, still has the marks of the Second World War. It's a big part of what the city is about. Um, But Paul recognised, he said it himself, he recognised that one of his father's jobs and people like him was that they came through those things because, um, you know, they they rallied together. Um, They brought themselves together and their principal task as musicians and songwriters is to bring people together at times like that. And I think McCartney kind of consciously recognised that that was what was needed. That was the thing that he could contribute at that particular point.
1: So he did. And it was an awful risk for him. I mean, we've seen um, at the start of the last pandemic, celebrities being criticised for, you know, was it Gal Gadot did a version of with with other people of Imagine? Yeah. Yeah. you know, highly criticised not just from a musical perspective because they didn't share a key or a tempo, um, but I think that, it, that they were criticised from a perspective that um, they weren't reading the room essentially. But I think, that totally just better. as Philip says, McCartney was reading the room at that point. He he'd seen he'd seen what um, you know critical events can do to people and he also saw an opportunity to provide an artistic response that said yes i i I can kind of i'm not from here but i can see what what you're going through in a way Mm -hmm. and i think again that could have been maybe at the time possibly or or some people could still look at it and, and and see it as um as you know a media opportunity for mccartney but i think that that song, Freedom, came from a place of love and it came from a place of understanding. And as Philip mentions, it comes from a place of understanding his own family background. You know, I suppose we keep going back to this, I suppose, that family was is still critical to Paul McCartney. Um, that's been at the, at the centre of his life all the way through. That's key to that.
0: Why so much more than, say, George Harrison? Because from what I can tell, George's family was nice and he got along well with them. What is it about the McCartney family situation that is quite different than George's?
2: That's a a really good question. Um, And it probably goes to personality. Once again, uh, when I talk about Paul McCartney, I don't know the man. When I talk about George Harrison, I do not know the man. um, It's being filtered through all of this other work. But George seemed to be a little bit more, um, taciturn is the wrong word, but a little bit more um, uh, quieter. Mm And he's often portrayed that particular way, and I think he could be just as hilarious as as the others Mm -hmm. um, and just as extroverted as the others. You wouldn't have got to the position that he got to post Beatles without that that happening. But I think there's a combination of both Paul's personality, the permission that he got from, and I mean this in a psychological sense, the permission that he got from his father and his aunts and his uncles to be a performer, to be um, extroverted and gregarious when it was needed. I think that is probably the difference. I would probably say, without knowing them really, really well, that Harrison's family were very strongly communal, um, as I think a lot of working-class people are, Um, but they weren't as uh, outwardly voluble as McCartney's family, and that's just, I I would say, that might be the difference. And note: I say might, because I don't really know.
1: Right. Yeah, going back to that idea of, of collaboration too. I think George Harrison proved later on that he was an incredible collaborator. People loved working with him. Mm. Um, you know, be- becoming the executive or, or producer, at Life of Brian. Um, you know, the Traveling Wilburys, all these other projects that that Harrison had, including outside of music, just you know, was testament I think to George Harrison as a collaborator. But I think. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, as Philip says, it comes down to personal choice. That McCartney is thinking, okay, the people that I know I can trust are my family, and therefore that's where I'll I'll, I'll place my energy and my trust. Um, and it's not until later on that you the, the fact that he forms a band with his wife. Um,
0: what do you think uh, of that?
1: Why not? Why not? I think he, I think he,
2: Paul McCartney said himself, you know, when, when um, they formed a band with uh, um, John and George, they didn't have a clue what they were doing. They weren't the greatest musicians in the world. They were just, you know, they bumped into people who were relatively close. You know, they saw someone on a bus. They went to school together. A typical way that bands get together early on. So in his reinvention, he just turns to the people beside him. Um, I think the fact that Linda had been his a massive support through the trauma that he went through in the breakup. And, you know, he says to her one night, uh, um, I think they were actually in bed laying there, and he said, would you like to join a band? Would you like to go on the road? And I think that took her aback. <laughs> but, you know, she, she could see how incredibly important that was to him. Um, so I, I've got I, – I personally have no problem with that at all. That's great. That's fantastic. And then, you know, she had the, um, the fortitude to um, – Learn in public basically, um, which you know, young musicians don't necessarily do. But you know, she was in the, the glare of the international spotlight while she was, you know, her first dipping her toe into a um, band, as it were. Very brave, brave thing to do. Um, yeah. but he trusted her. So, why wouldn't she be in the band? You know, um, so I think it was a at, a, at a personal level, I think it was a necessary move on his part. I think it cost, cost Linda quite a lot. But, you know, um, Mick Jagger's famous comment about, you know, having your old lady in the band, um, and saying that quite snidely, et cetera, I think was a hallmark of the same period and time of uh, that you know, we were talking about with um, Jan Wenner and all of those rock critics. It's not something that a, a rock artist did. But, you know, um, this is another risk-taking venture on McCartney's part. He said, "Just let's just go on the road. Let's start again. And that's how we knew how to start, because that's how we started
1: before. I think I think that speaks to uh, relationships. I think that um, it was probably incredibly challenging for Linda, because probably one of the key artists of the 1960s says, do you want to be in my band? And <laughs> And your first, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, your job is essentially your first job as a, as a photographer. You're thinking, hmm. <laughs> uh, so I think I think it was probably immensely challenging. You know, even you know, I, I'm a musician. If Paul McCartney asked me to be in his band, I, I would be scared too. <laughs> <you know? laughs> uh, so, but, so I, I think I think it was probably critical. You know, McCartney at that time needed someone he could trust. Uh, more than anything, you know that this wasn't about musical proficiency. I think that was a critical time for him at, at that point with McCartney One and Ram. Linda was critical to those albums. Again, maybe not explicitly in what we can hear, um, but but critical in that support and and uh, that that relationship support musically as well as um, as well as romantically.
0: Yeah, I think it would have been fun when you talk about. How it formed and the trust that he had in her at that period, I, I can understand. They were really only talking to each other. It was them against the world. He really trusted her. It probably seemed like they were doing everything together, so they may as well, you know. To me, she was assigned the hardest instrument, so I can't even understand that. But um, yeah, I like their voices together.
1: Yes, their I just voices,
2: think I can't remember whether it was Elvis Costello or Brian Wilson or. Maybe it was even Michael Jackson who just loved the combination of um, Linda and Danny Lane and Paul on record. It was a unique um, harmonising sound. Listen to the Venus and Mars album, have a listen to the harmonies on. Listen to what the man said. The harmonies on that particular song are just to die for. Listen to them on headphones and just see when you can pick out the difference between the three voices. Just standing
1: That's what the man said. Don't you listen to what the man said?
0: He said, right. And, and I have to assume that Paul chose the mixture of voices. You know, mm. I've heard Beatles Bros that are kind of like, just imagine if it had been George and John, which you know I love. Paul and John and George's voices together as much as the next person, but I also really like Paul and Linda's
2: voice together. I think that's part of the the, the, the reinvention. You know, he, he has a different set of voicings for those harmonies. He has a different way he approaches songs as a result of the, the people that are around him. Um, and I think that you know all of those things um, contributed to what he was actually doing. Um, and I think she brought something, um, just in terms of a harmony singing, um, to his work. I think that's probably been very well um, underrated. But certainly people like um, Costello and so on really appreciated what she had brought to the whole thing. And, and In fact, if you go and have a listen to what Wix Wickens, his current keyboard player, has to say about Linda, um, there's a tremendous amount of respect for her amongst the people that were working with her and knew what was going on. I think towards the end of the um, Wings, she was a, a fully-fledged professional. She was a, a musician in the band. One of the things that um, McCartney said that, that was one of her prime functions was to, once again, this is reading the room, she learnt how to move an audience around, if you want to put it that way. You know, when's the right time to clap? You know, there's, there's a yeah. whole series of uh, um, stagecraft activity that you have to be aware of as a performer. You know, if someone's got the solo, everybody looks at the soloist, you know, or, or you're directing attention all the time. And, oh, 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 and if you watch those performances, she got quite good at that. Hmm. Um, so I think she bought quite a lot that she hasn't been credited for.
1: Really?
0: I always think her life outlook too, you know, the sort of nature informs a lot of their world view. And I, I have to assume that permeated into his artistry at that time too.
2: You know more so than on the Beatles. Yeah, and I, you know I think that that was a product of the times—the return to nature. You know, um, all those sorts of things that um, Jackson Brown was talking about in um, you know, before the deluge, or even the name Credence Clearwater Revival. The, 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 there was a, a strong environmental strand in that whole period, and I think Linda kind of brought that to what um, they were doing. You know, the, the very fact of you know, at least the two of them. You know, McCartney himself says ram was their hippie period you know they they just went back to the country tried to get back to their roots in that way you know they you know they painted their faces they you know live like country bumpkins and so on etc um yeah they were just basically hippies at that time and, and a big part of that whole movement was the environmental thing but linda absolutely believed in um those things you know the very fact that mccartney is still a vegetarian i think is principally because of um linda's doing
0: yeah yeah
1: it was a it was a critical point this and i, I we probably missed the opportunity to do it in the book, but I think that uh, if you've seen the James Bond movie Skyfall, there's a bit where he he realizes somebody's after him, so he he goes back to his family home, uh, in in sort of this deserted right, yeah. sort of manor building in Scotland, and it, it it it's a similar situation where McCartney was, you know, he was devastated about the breakup of the Beatles,
0: yeah,
1: and so he needed to emotionally regroup, yes, but whilst doing that, he was also working on on new ideas new challenges at that particular time too yeah. and and thinking again rethinking where which direction he's going to take next and i think there's a really interesting parallel to be drawn between James Bond and Paul McCartney oh really yeah, <laughs> yeah. well ju- ju- just in that you know i think going back it's it's the same in um in Crocodile Dundee, too, when when the baddies are after him, he says, "Okay, I need to go. We need to we need to get out of um, the United States. We need to head back to my territory where I know it best." Yeah. And although although you know Paul McCartney didn't go back to Liverpool, he went up to up to Scotland. There is there is that idea that he was regrouping mm-hmm. and he's, he's he's rethinking about where he's going to next.
0: Yeah. And I think
1: that that particular period is probably critical as well. And Linda. Uh, as Phil mentions, was also critical to that um, in particular. And, and as her ideas have permeated uh, through his life, I think there's, 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 there's it's a really short clip, and, all, and the Beatles nerds listening will know this, but um, on one of the anthologies where they all meet back together, George, Ringo and Paul, um, somebody makes a comment about, is that jacket leather? I <laughs> thought you were a vegetarian. Um and so, and so actually, you know, even at that point, maybe uh, there was some influence beyond uh, simply Paul McCartney and maybe onto the the rest of the Beatles too.
0: Mm. Um, do, have you noticed a difference in his artistry after Linda? Was there a shift in his voice? I think
2: there was a shift in his, in his musical voice, as yes. in the, the, as artistic, the, the yeah. sounds that he was making, most yeah. definitely. Um, that that's probably attributable in some way to the person that he was singing with. I keep thinking, uh, as we as we were just talking then, of um, the clip of him sitting outside the farm in Scotland with Heather and I think it's Mary dancing around, yeah, um, while Linda um, is sitting beside him and they're they're singing, you know, they're just you know mucking around with um, Haydiddle Diddle and um, a couple of others as well. They're just experimenting with each other's voices and and what's possible to do. As any other musician would testify, that you tend to play to the music that's around you um, and the performers that are around you. It's just a question of affordances. What does this musician afford me the ability to do? And I think singing with John and George, you get a particular voice that will meld with those three. Don't forget Paul's a really good mimic as well. Yeah. Um, and then when he's singing with Linda and um, Danny, he he knows what sort of voice he has to produce in order to meld with those um, singers as well. And I don't think it just occurs in terms of um, the people he's singing with but also the people who are playing drums with him. I mentioned Danny Sewell a moment ago and the guitar players, uh, Danny Lane and so on. These all bring something to what McCartney's doing and he slots right in. Um, he certainly brings something himself. So I think it might be... Um, Um, not inevitable, but certainly what uh, um, he does as an adaptable musician, and it's those things around him that create the voice for him. So he brings stuff to all of this, and the people around him bring stuff to all of this as well. And I think it's a hallmark of those um, collaborations at that particular period. He's working with a different group of musicians. He's working with a different group of people in the studio, um, and that in many ways is bound to fold into his own work Was very determinedly didn't want to repeat himself at all
0: what do you think about the idea like Paul said Eric Clapton said he would have jumped at the chance to work with me at that time I didn't want that I mean I don't know if that's true or not but I did he said I did not want that at that time I wanted to rebuild would that have been good for Paul's artistry or would that not have been good maybe he needed to be more relaxed to reinvent
2: um well yeah this is all speculation of course but um, yeah, I think the question of trust, the question of relaxation and so on, it's sort of the comfort that um, you would need to be confident. Um, I would probably suggest that you know, if he was working with people of the calibre of um, Eric Clapton, then he would have to perform at a certain level um, or he would think that he would have to most definitely change his artistry. Um, so I think he was really interested in uh, um, you know, being safe, being secure in his environment. This is a thing about. This is Chiksamahai actually writes about this quite a lot. There tends to be a, a series of complementary opposites inside most creative people. That you know they they got to exhibit in order to in order to generate an emotional content. You've got to be vulnerable to the world, but in order to go and sell um, that content, you've also got to ha- a, you know gird your loins and get out there and uh, you know cope with the criticisms and the critiques and so on. So there seems to be a duality for most creative people in all sorts of ways. Um, so I think that's probably going on there as well. And all of that, in some ways, is feeding into um, McCartney's artistry at this time. Um, but also, too, I think he contributes quite a lot. He has an idiosyncratic background. He's got a, a, you know, something unique he brings to all of that himself. Um, and I think he's quite purposeful in that at times as well. But here's the duality again. He's also willing to let go and bring all of that stuff into his work that you know it's not necessarily... Um, in his full control, and I think that's a a marker of his process of collaboration as well. So I think the question of duality is really important with him as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Right, and Paul is so confusing because of that because you think you know him in one way, (laughs) and it's like, oh, then he's completely the opposite. Do you think he's particularly sensitive? I mean, I would assume he has to be to be able to communicate the level of emotion he has through his work. Over the years,
2: yeah, I think he's in, I think he's incredibly sensitive. Uh, um, he's said at various times he doesn't know what, is, what a hit is. You know, every song he's working on is is the best song ever. Um, and he, you know, there's stories about him. Um, you know, and I think any artist goes through this. That you know, you put an album out, and you know, you're waiting to figure out is it good, is it bad, what have I done? You know, poor Paul.
0: Mostly, it's he's told it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years later and they're like oh yeah that was good
2: yeah that was that was fantastic let's rethink that
0: (laughs) he's got to be tough then is he tough as well then
1: that's the complementary pair right there isn't it is that is is that level of sensitivity and also being resilient to to that and i think he's proved time and time again I, i think it it's interesting, Diana, because you mentioned about okay, yeah, you think you know Paul, and then you'll see another aspect of his personality or his artistry. And I think that's again, we, all we're doing is we're just putting evidence in the box to, to, to for for the jury that is that is the planet to say, you know, why Paul McCartney should be up there as as the, as one of the top artists of all time.
0: And that's that's your premise. That's actually my next question. Could you just talk about your book, about why you did it, and the, the main premise of it, so that you know people listening can, can go and seek it out? Yeah.
1: You know. Well, do you? I mean, Philip and I have been. We, we first met at um, the art of Re- no. Do you know what that 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 is? Can I tell the full story, Phil? Yeah, you go for your life. Okay. So in 2010, I, I'd broken my ankle playing football. Oh no. Okay. And. I returned to work, and there was this Australian guy in my office writing his first book, which was called Creativity and Cultural Production, okay. Issues for Media Practice. It's all available in good bookshops by Philip McIntyre. And as he was sat in my office, he was writing his book. He brought his family over with him from Australia, and we struck up an incredible relationship. He helped me to formulate my ideas for my PhD at the time. So he's, he's my Linda McCartney in <laughs> a way. Um, he's been incredibly influential um, on my career, ju- ju- just as an academic, as as well as as someone uh, who is a, considered an author and a writer as well. And Philip and I had had worked on various different things together. Um, we'd worked on a couple of McCartney pieces, in fact. for first call, Philip, our first uh, conference was the Art of Record Production Conference in San Francisco. Yeah. Where we actually addressed um, Paul McCartney as producer, and we focused, I think, uh, quite specifically in some areas, and maybe on on the album press to play, and that really started our our interest in uh, in, in Paul McCartney. So we've written quite uh, quite a lot on on this particular area. We've collaborated on different areas of writing about creativity and record production. Um, we wrote a journal article, which is about the multi layered contributing factors to um, the emergence of paperback writer and we submitted that to a journal um, of which we got the feedback for it, which was the most damning feedback I've ever read for anything ever. (laughs) Um, And at that point, I think Philip and I decided, okay, well, we have enough material maybe to write our own book. And that's, that began the the seed of that idea, but, and, and Philip will probably have more on that story.
2: Yeah, that, that's all true. That's all a true <laughs> yeah. story. And at, at the same time, um, as we were conversing, I was writing that first book, was really just putting a lot of ideas down that um, um, i have been working on as a scholar, and that's the question of of the systems model of creativity. Um, my own PhD thesis was on songwriting. Um, okay. And I got really intrigued by how songs came into being. That was the fundamental question. And the more that I um, uh, researched, the more that I read, the more that I realised that the um, research into creativity had outstripped common understandings of what was going on. Um, And I think that's still the case. More and more people are moving towards the idea that creativity comes about as a result of a system in action. Um, and this is increasingly the case inside the research world. And that idea, so I think those ideas are what we're trying to do in the book. And the very first chapter is, is a, an update of a literature review on um, creativity. And if you think about, say, for instance, once again in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, um, how films come about, you know, we tend to think it's, you know, individual genius again and auteur theory and, you know, it's Martin Scorsese or it's you know, whoever it is, the director when you actually do have a look very, very closely at what's what's happening, it's a highly multifactorial, collaborative, interdependent, scalable, complex process. And what we try to do is pull that out in the book. But in this case, just using Paul McCartney as our case study. Mm. Um, So there's a system at work. Um, It includes, in its very elemental form, three basic um, components. One we've mentioned a couple of them. One is the domain, which is the body of knowledge. The second is the field, which is uh, all of the people in the world who understand the body body of knowledge to a certain degree. And then you have a thing called an agent, an active decision making entity, of which Paul McCartney is one, but so were the Beatles, um, but so was EMI. So, on. but there so there's someone stimulates change in that system. And in order to stimulate change, they need to. Immerse themselves in a body of knowledge, and which is why I think and Paul thinks that um, um, you know McCartney's family was incredibly important to his artistry. Um, immersing themselves in the body of knowledge, getting it to know, getting to know it really, really well, um, where you can make innovative changes to that body of knowledge, and then see whether the people who hold that body of knowledge, other musicians, other performers, other songwriters, and so on, recognize the changes that you make in that system as being worthwhile or valued. Mm. Um, And that's the essential point we're trying to make um, in the book, and we're using Paul McCartney's life work as evidence of that. So it's Mm. a different conception of how things work. So we're not um, trying to say that creative agents like Paul McCartney, um, extraordinary people who do extraordinary things, are not important in the system. They are necessary, absolutely necessary, but they're not sufficient. You also need a body of knowledge, and you also need a field of, People who understand that body of knowledge to various degrees of expertise. Put all those three things together and creativity happens. And what the systems approach does is kind of put those things together. People are important, that's for sure. We can't think of them as geniuses anymore, but they are important inside the system. And I think that's the fundamental premise of the book.
0: Okay, so you use Paul to explain sort of how somebody, a great artist, was part of a system
2: pretty much yeah that's that's pretty much it and the other way around too yes the system is part of Paul McCartney
0: Um, Mm, okay do you have a point that you want to make about Paul in the book
2: about Paul himself
0: Mm -hmm. or as artist
2: um I think he's been much underrated um certainly in a in a general sense not by people who understand the domain um, that's for sure. Other musicians, other performers, and so on—they you know, recognise that, th- that this is that this person is a contributor, big yes. time. Um, but in a general sense, you know, his his um, you know his tabloid celebrity fighter um, kind of hides that for most people. But anyone who's i uh, got any insight into how music works and how creativity works, he's an astounding example of uh, an individual agent who has
0: brought change into the system great i saw your book on facebook where somebody posted it and then everybody was commenting that they wanted to read it but it looked expensive so you know that, that, <laughs> Very, was, that was the was it's it's, point.
1: Re, it's as, as uh, you know as we say in the uk it's reassuringly expensive yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a quality work <laughs> oh, is that what it
0: is? Okay. yeah
2: uh, <laughs> Wait, wait till wait till it comes out in a paperback version.
0: Is it going to? Like will it actually come down or
2: well, I'm pretty sure it will.
0: Okay, that's don't, great.
2: Don't tell our publishers we said that though.
0: Okay, this is a podcast, and so the people that are listening are really big. Beatles nerds, and so they're the type of people that actually will go out and buy it. You know, I will buy it because I think it sounds fantastic.
1: If there's a possibility, then Diana, because you know to plug my other book, sure. <laughs> uh, which is called Creativity in the Recording Studio: Alternative Takes. Chapter number six is dedicated to the creative system of songwriting, and and specifically to the emergence of, of Strawberry Fields Forever, um, and John Lennon's journey, um, and, and the other contributing factors along the way. Um, that led to the to the finalization and uh, of of that particular record and i think uh beatles fans will probably you know they, they know the spoiler alert um of take 7 and take 26 but i think that you know but maybe maybe some beatles fans that you know i interviewed dave harries for that uh, who also appears in part of this book as well dave harries was the studio manager at the time you'll you'll see him when peter jackson finalizes the uh, the band on the roof you will see dave harry's pictured there as well um who was you know is underrepresented in, in the story of strawberry fields forever um but so so we helped to to shed light on his on his important contribution um to that record and again using that that idea of the creative system as a framework to explore these particular ideas not seeing john lennon as a genius but actually showing how John Lennon is part of a creative system in action with various different um, contributing factors.
0: Yeah, I think John was really, really supported by, like, I think John's particular brilliance was particularly supported by the system of the Beatles. I find that the, the production elements to John's songs really elevates them things like um, I Am the Walrus or Strawberry Fields Forever. I think maybe Paul came in with such a definitive point of view on what he wanted to do that maybe he didn't invite all the collaboration and ideas that John did, and, and in some ways that's a function because John wasn't as much of a producer as Paul. You know? and nor, te- nor as t- technically adept in the studio, as
2: I think, and I think that's quite commonly known. Um, yeah. Yeah. The uh, you know, and I think you're quite right. Paul did bring a lot to um, the production of um, John's songs. I think he saw them as a point of experimentation. Yes. Well, you know, the very fact of the um, the orchestral crescendo in "A Day in the Life" um, is primarily um, Paul McCartney's work, and you know, it's a it's a feature of that song. Um, you mentioned "I Am the Walrus" and you know a, a few others as well. Um, these were opportunities to um, you know just to take that. Um, material that he gathered in the radiophonics workshop in that period that you know he was living right in the middle of London, etc., and to take all of those ideas and go well, let's have a crack at this. You know the the, the looping tapes and the seagull sounds on Tomorrow Never Knows. That's primarily McCartney working out his um, um, avant garde stage, um, and you know that's held up over all of these years. Yeah. Um, so there's a there's a, an approach in the studio that um, I think you're quite right that. John was um, highly collaborative in what he was doing. And I think that, um, you know, Paul took those opportunities to um, experiment in many ways, not just him, but George and quite a few others as well.
1: If I could add to that, I I think actually it speaks to as well um, their... their backgrounds as songwriters in a way. I think, you know, McCartney would much more prefer once he gets into the studio to experiment with instrumentation, to experiment with ideas, rather than maybe the structure of the overall song. Whereas I think, um, you know, Lennon was quite happy to say, okay, this is as far as I can go with this. And I'm happy to invite contributions from McCartney, from um, George Martin, from George Harrison, and and possibly Ringo Starr at, at some point too.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking that that like in some ways Paul's structure of his songs are so definite that they don't invite the kind of experimentation that John's do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sometimes I think Paul's. It would have been good if he could have had that same level of, of experimentation, even something like. Maxwell's Sil- Silver Hammer, which John complained about, sometimes I feel like, well, John, you could have stepped up and made it better, you know?
2: Well, to, to be fair, there was an example with Obladee, Obladee, which they got really sick of recording. Um, and McCartney was after a, a, a reggae feel on it, but, you know, like a lot of musicians at that time, just simply didn't understand what was going on with reggae. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then um, John got so sick of it, he came in and pounded away at the piano and said, this is how it goes. Um, and that was the definitive take um, I, saying... don't,
0: I don't even like that version I know that's the great, <laughs> but I, 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 I like the anth- the newest version of the White Album it has some other takes that I think I'm yes. like, I'm stuck with those ones and I don't always like to compare them because they're their own artists, how different do you think that they are as artists you know, Paul doesn't like to portray them as extremely different, he said in some ways we are and in some ways we aren't you know
2: that's a good question I think they were on I think they were on very different journeys you mentioned it earlier mm-hmm. um, once John had got to help and realized probably through his um, listening to Bob Dylan that he could actually write about his own personal experience I think he took that idea forward whereas I think McCartney was still traveling along the road of being a um, songwriter um, and all that he knew what a songwriter could do hence he's you know you want me to write a, a theme for James Bond sure I'll have a crack at that that's probably a, a superficial difference between them. But I think the commonality is that they they both of them just absolutely loved music in all its shape, all its sizes and all its forms. And I think that was probably what why they were so close, such close friends, is that they just loved music.
1: I would add that it's very difficult to compare them as artists because um obviously John Lennon's passed away and it the only way that we would be able to compare them would be if John Lennon was still alive today, and to, to look at his body of work. Yeah. Essentially, um, what we do have is is McCartney's. We we can look back on fifty years of. I mean, I'm I'm still amazed because like, I'm I'm nowhere near fifty, and so but McCartney's been making music for that period of time, if not longer, um, which is just astounding. It's an astounding achievement, and I think you know we we go back to this idea of. You know, we've been back to this idea, I think, a lot with celebrity and um, the things that surround that. But if you strip all of that away, this is someone who's been writing music for 50 odd years, which is just incredible. Uh, It's a phenomenal uh, achievement. And I think, yeah, you can't talk. In fact, I think we make that it's one of the opening sentences in, in one of the chapters, I think, Philip, is that you can't talk about Paul McCartney without talking about John Lennon. But they are they are different. And they they did have different approaches. They had different ideas. Um, they were at different parts of their journey. We saw that Lennon caught, caught up McCartney a little bit later on in his solo career, but writing for fans who maybe then had families and, and kids, et cetera, uh, who were a bit more grown up and not thinking about the the teen market. And I think who knows? Who knows what would have happened yeah. if John Lennon was still around today?
0: Yeah, yeah. You always want to compare them, but at the same time, I kind of hate the fact that it's less done with John. John is sort of allowed to be his own artist. Paul is constantly compared to John. Um, and Paul has so much more of a body of work right now.
1: An incredible body of work as well. You know, when 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 you look back at what McCartney's done, who he's collaborated with and how he's done it, you know, it's it's so expansive. Um, it's pretty incredible that that a pop musician from Liverpool has done all of these things um, and he's done it on Endeavour. He's done it with, um, with skill and tact and sensitivity. Um, You know, I I suppose that's what we kind of want to, to portray and and get across in the book is that McCartney is, there is a reason why McCartney is still lauded as such. You know, even if even if he got into a room with a bunch of young musicians, they would quickly assess the fact that he is the man. (laughs) You know, he is an incredible musician, Uh, and and you know some of his recent collaborations have attested to that. You know, with people like Dave Grohl, who's just obsessed with him, uh, Kanye West, etc. You know, who 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 worked with him or collaborated on on aspects of his work. You know, and it and it speaks to it speaks to how incredible Paul McCartney is and how expansive he is in his, in, in his approach.
0: I've had so much uh, enjoyment because for a long time I was just a Beatles fan and I knew a little bit of all of the solo Beatles uh, careers. And I, you know, maybe 15 years ago, I started to get into, it was probably Wingspan actually that introduced mm. me to like the, the history part of it, the history part of it was like, Oh, this is interesting. And I started to explore a little bit, but then I would say in the past 10 years, I've really gone into his, discography deeply and it was such a joy because i had that stupid version of you know well he wasn't as good after the beatles you know this kind of idea <laughs> that that still exists it's better but it's still there and then at one point you know i just thought no it's the same there's the same beautiful music it was just the lens we were looking at paul through unfortunately and the fact that it's huge his career is huge but once people get over that hurdle there's treasure to find there.
2: Yeah, there's, a, there's some uh, really astounding work there, and one of the things that McCartney himself said, and, and you mentioned it a moment ago, you, you said it was such a joy. Yeah. Um, and he'd said himself that you know what he was proud of, especially with the Beatles' work, is, and, and this is probably what attracts me to him as well, is that um, a lot of their work was concerned with love. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a depressive. You know, there was certainly some angst in what they were doing, and so on, etc. It was leavened by that um, at times, but their body of work was generating love in the world. Mm. I mean, quite literally. The Beatles albums are, are full of joy. I don't think you can help but feel joy after listening to a Beatles album. And I think that carried through in McCartney's work. Um, to uh, to be a, a person who year in, year out brought joy into the world and love into the world, I think that's a remarkable achievement. And McCartney at one point said, you know, that's one of the things that He's most proud of. They had done that, um, and I think that's probably the legacy that I would point to um, for him. There's not too many uh, famous uh, um, musicians, famous actors, famous directors, etc. That their body of work um, brings such a positive um, point of view to the world. I think McCartney does that.
1: Absolutely. Your experience, Diana, I think is is coming. You know, it's it's seeing. Um, the Beatles as, as the end, uh, you know, it's the wardrobe and you think, oh, it's the end. All I've got is this wardrobe door, but then you actually go through uh, to Narnia when you realize (laughs) how expansive his work is, you know? That's what a great metaphor. It is.
0: And and that's why in my introduction to Ram, I I said, you know, Paul's always thought of as the Beatles and then there's the post Beatles. and, And it's kind of like, I've started to think of Paul McCartney just as artist. And the the Beatles is his first part, you know, first part of his yes. career, and then he's got a second act and a third act. Now I just see him as a giant artist, and you know, he's got these different periods.
2: Yes, but you'll have to read our book, Diana.
0: Okay. Well, I will read your book as soon as it comes out. I will read it. <laughs> important questions i've got to ask you guys do you have a favorite look for paul
2: yeah yeah when when um there was three photos available to us which paul had hung out, um one was for the front cover yeah for the front cover of the book and um one was a really early photo of paul and john together and another one was um of paul playing live uh, playing his bass live during his Wings period, i will probably suggest around the Venus and, and Mars but the photo that we have on the cover of the book is close to the Revolver period um, and, and the look that the Beatles had on the photo on the rear of um, um, that album um, I think is the, the coolest that McCartney has ever been Okay There you go so, what, okay, so.
1: what's, what, what's your choice Paul? Uh, I, I, I've got to go with the classic Sergeant Peppers oh. I think
0: Mustache or no mustache it's... what do you think do you like the mustache
1: yeah. or not it has to be. It's it's iconic. I mean, if you, uh, so in, in in my first book, I ju- you know I, I actually I've actually done my own hand drawings in there, and one of them is 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 Len- I'm mean, talking about the people who were talking about in the book, but uh, one of them is just Lenin. It's just his glasses and his moustache, mm-hmm. pretty much. And I think you can actually just identify everyone in Sergeant Pepper's just from their moustache <laughs> and their hair. It's. Everything it's, else is. Yeah, yeah, John's
0: is kind of like this. I love I love both Paul and John in that period. The uh, Sergeant Pepper period
1: yeah i would i would say that that's the coolest for me and it's where you get to see some some of the strange the stranger items of clothing mm-hmm. appearing and george harrison wins the trophy for that with his <laughs> stripy stripy trousers pretty amazing
0: yeah yeah he was he was uh, really into the fashion he had some pretty good fashion actually yeah um but if i had to give the best stripy pants award in 1967 it would be John Lennon. You know, he kind of dressed like a royal wizard all year and I loved it. It was so colorful and regal. I love seeing John like that. And Paul looked like a prince, so dashing. I definitely think Paul wins her best hair mustache combo. Beard or no beard? Is that a good to get a thumbs up or thumbs down from you guys?
2: Oh, I think the beard around uh, around Ram and around um, McCartney. The, the, once again, the photo on the rear of McCartney one, uh, I think, kind of says quite a lot about um, you know his daughter Mary and the bomber jacket and all that sort of stuff. But I really love
1: the beard. I love the beard in that period. Yeah, I can't really grow one, so I'm just in awe of it. Really. Yes, <laughs> he he's got
0: a pretty good one, actually. Yeah. Yes. And, mullet or no mullet? Like it or not?
1: Gotta be no mullet for me, unfortunately. <laughs> no,
2: I, I I like the mullet mainly because that, that was the period
1: when I was playing uh, playing live a lot. So I, I, I associate with the mullet. Wait, <laughs> see, I see. I, I associate with it because I went back there last year when we were locked down for so long and I couldn't cut my hair. I, I went back to McCartney mullet. Covid-19 <laughs> style. Yeah. not not through not through choice Diana it was through necessity I want
0: to see we should put a picture of you up with a mullet
1: <laughs> no one wants to see that
0: I think so we can put you next to Paul and see and Linda Linda also had a matching mullet too
1: she did yeah, she did <laughs> yeah. um,
0: do you guys have favorite periods in terms of McCartney's albums? I know it's hard to, I don't ever want to make people choose an album, but, but do you have particular areas or times that you'd like to champion? as And some people love the, you know, late 80s. Some people think that's the worst, <laughs> whatever, you know?
1: Well, well if I could start off with a story because because the, the only the only Wings album we had in our house was Wings Wildlife <laughs> and I remember I remember listening to that because I I also we also had The Magical Mystery Tour which I used to listen to on repeat mm-hmm. and I remember listening to Magical Mystery Tour and then I sort of I said to him, to me mom is that Paul McCartney on the front yeah. you know he's wearing his tartan trousers yeah. or is he is, no he's he's in the water isn't he with his mm-hmm. guitar uh and I just couldn't equate the person who was singing on Magical Mystery Tour and singing Penny Lane to, um, you know, t- some of the things that appeared on Wings Wildlife. Uh, so I probably went through that experience like you, Dan, and going, what happened mm. in between those things? Mm. So uh, I would say Wings Wildlife is my least favourite Wings album. Really? Yeah. I actually
0: quite like, I like wildlife. Yeah. Some People Never Know is, like, one of my favourites.
1: Yeah, I, I never did. got that far on the album.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> you probably didn't get past Bop or Mumbo, but... Um... Bit Bop was very confusing to me. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> where's, the where's the lyrics? Where are the lyrics?
0: Are you excited about... What do you think about Paul's new book? Do you think it's well, a yes, good book
2: or... I think the premise of the book, which uh, um, you know I haven't read a great deal about it, but I'm certainly waiting for it to come. But the very fact that he's um, written his own biography through the writing of the songs, I think that speaks to what we were talking about before, that that his principal language is music, um, and I think he's got as close to it as he can, um, because I, probably for him, as he says, the you know the, the songs evoke all sorts of memories, all sorts of things that you know were going on around him when he was writing them that hardly anyone else would be aware of. But, you know, for him, the songs are his biography. So it seems to me to be a natural thing for him to have done, you know, to to um, you know write a biography built around his own songs. I think that's a, a really good premise for
1: him. The really exciting thing is that our book comes out at a very similar time to his book. Oh, so- no! Yeah. No, that, that's a good thing. It's we can piggyback, I think, off the promotion.
0: Definitely, definitely. We, we will yeah. to understand the artist that is McCartney, because Paul is not always great about explaining his own music. And I love the idea that he's just going to use the songs to stimulate his or jog his memory about what was yes. going on. I hope yep. that's more it, because I don't particularly find, I don't enjoy his discussions about his own music in general what he tends to do is he'll he'll give us some little piece of information about a song that's quite irrelevant to the emotional center of the song you know mm-hmm. and and I also think he doesn't have the greatest vocabulary to talk about his music you know sometimes he's not the best he's not the best at selling or romancing his own work which is fine because that's, that's, that's other people can do that but mm-hmm. we'll we'll see what his book is like
1: It's, it's, you know, as Philip says, his first language is music. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's the same way I don't, I really don't know why we interview footballers or sports people (laughs) after an event because their first language isn't, you know, that their experience of the event isn't, you know, whichever language they speak. Um, It is, it is the sport that they're playing. You know, footballers, you say, oh, what happened in that match? They're not thinking at that time. It, they're probably, as in Checks at My terms, they're in flow. Mm. Mm-hmm. They are balancing that challenging skill. They're in that flow channel. And I would, you know, I would probably think that McCartney's in that flow channel too when he's when he's writing music and he's trying to um, convey a particular or communicate a particular uh, idea or he wants to evoke a particular emotion. Um and so, yeah, his first language isn't English, in a sense, Absolutely. it's music.
0: Absolutely. I really do think that that is the issue. And that. thank you for articulating that really well, because yeah. I think that when he's in this state, it's all just flowing through him. It's coming naturally. And then when he's actually asked to explain it later on, he can't because it was all just coming uh, naturally. And then so he grabs on to one little thing. And says, Oh yes, you know, I was thinking about that. It's just it's it's not his strength. It's like you said, the footballers they play the game, you know.
1: Yeah, but that's that's why I think that the lyrics, the book of lyrics is probably the best way for to tell his own story, actually, in that way. I think that's that's really, really nice. The beauty of it is that our book, um, thank you, Diana, our book does, you know, contribute in that way to maybe supporting some of those some of those stories around um, maybe some of the lyrical content or the things that, that McCartney was trying to convey or some of the things that he was going through at the time as well.
0: Do you give a lot of history and biography in your book?
2: Um, I think we, we do give, I think we give enough to support the ideas that we're trying to uh, um, illuminate. Um, it's not the book's not deliberately biographical or chronological right. but, it, but it winds up with some sort of chronology. Right. Um, you know the the subhead of the book is um, you know from the Beatles and you know the Beatles and Beyond. Yes. Um, and that's really what's given the structure to the book. So it's not biographical in the uh, um, common sense of the word, but there is a lot of biographical information in there.
0: Okay. And and so when is it available?
2: The ninth of the ninth. The ninth of September. Okay. It sounds like yeah. a which sounds like a song to me. It <laughs> sounds like a a classic. Um, Hoagy Carmichael song.
0: Well, it's also nine. Number nine is John Lennon.
2: So. Ah, well, there you go. See, these these become.
1: We deliberately built that
2: in, didn't we, Paul?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. This was all completely deliberate. <laughs> um, we we have contacted Paul McCartney's management to write a song with him around that, but we haven't heard back just yet.
0: <laughs> Did you say Fingers crossed. Call? Did you send the book to his his people, his managers?
2: Uh, no, we did. We did early on in the in the um, re, in the writing of the book. We did contact, um, try to contact him, yep. through MPL Communication, and I think we've still got the the loveliest rejection letter you'd ever want to get. <laughs> it
1: was nice. It
0: was
2: nice. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. Oh. Yeah.
0: It's too bad we yeah, didn't talk was... to you. That would have been really amazing.
2: It would have. It would have indeed. Um, one of our colleagues, um, who who is also a, a lad from Liverpool, um, Simon Barber, runs another podcast called Soda Jerker. And yes. um, his interview with um, Paul McCartney is his top-rating podcast. That, so if you want to get a fairly close and intimate uh, conversation, I think that one with Simon
1: and... Um... Brian. Sorry, Brian.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's a fantastic podcast, and I highly recommend it to everyone who's listening. But... I think that people who are listening to me probably already know about it because it's a very small, tight community here. Yes. But um, anyways, I'm going to recommend everybody reads your book. When I read your book, I will give a review and a shout-out to you guys. I hope I hope you guys come back at some point. That should
2: that should, that should be a lot of fun. And, and, and this conversation has been a lot of fun too.
0: Oh, I'm really looking forward to sharing it with people. I'd love to do it for the other Beatles too, but I'm, I'm happy because I think that Paul – has really been misjudged and so I love the fact that we're taking the time to talk about him and I love the fact you guys wrote this book so I can't wait. Well
1: thanks very much for having us it's been a pleasure. Yes
0: me too. the episode. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving it a review or up to a five-star rating. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please join the Patreon community, which is patreon.com forward slash once we We will be back with yet another revisited episode on Monday. So please stay tuned. Until then, all the best. Lots of love. Bye bye.